0: Let's have a word of prayer uh, before we get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to make sure that we bow ourselves humbly before you as we open your word, as we realize that's what it is, your word. Yes, it was delivered through the hands of human men, uh, but we know that it was divinely guided. Uh, We know our Lord. Told these men before he left that the spirit would come uh, and would bring to memory all that they needed to know to record for our benefit. Uh, Father, may we uh, get a glimpse of our Lord's humanity and may we not uh, degrade his humanity with his divinity. Uh, May we not say, may we dare not say he was less of a man because he was God. Uh, He, in fact, was much more of a human person than any of us is uh, because he was just as we are. The writer of Hebrews says yet without sin. Uh, And therefore, the things that he endured, the burdens that he carried, uh, the ministry that he had uh, was far deeper, far greater, far more difficult uh, than anything we have ever experienced. Uh, And father, we know that during his suffering and his Uh, Trials and temptations uh, that he uh, bore up under uh, an extreme amount of temptation that we just do not understand. Because of our sinfulness, we sin very quickly. Uh, He felt the full weight of that temptation without sinning. uh, Something that's hard to grasp. But, Father, may we uh, come to love the Lord more. May we appreciate the Lord more. May we understand More deeply, what he has done for us on our behalf, uh, especially during this Easter season. So we pray uh, that you would make us attentive disciples, uh, that you would make us hungry for the word. Uh, We pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might understand. Uh, Father, we pray that you would drive away all apathy, all carelessness, all laziness, uh, all the things uh, that uh, want to pull us away from you, Father. Uh, We just praise you. We thank you. We give you all the glory uh, for any good thing that happens here in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at uh, we started a series of Easter messages last week and we uh, looked at um, the cup that uh, Christ was called to drink and we learned uh, that his death uh, was simply the culmination of the cup that he had to drink, but actually Uh, The cup that the scriptures say the Lord had to drink involved his entire life, uh, his entire ministry, everything uh, that was involved in that. And today we kind of want to look at uh, something uh, from a different perspective, maybe something that um, you would never would expect to hear from the pulpit, but uh, something that is in the scriptures, something connected to the Easter account, uh, something that we need to understand. Uh, what exactly was going on in the spiritual realms uh, during those last days of our Lord's life? Uh, the temptations. What was Satan doing? Uh, what was his role in the Lord's suffering and crucifixion? And, uh, and again, the outline you have. Uh, I'll try to go in order, help you answer some of these questions. Uh, and at the end, a lot of those questions toward the end are devotional questions. Uh, I worded these. Uh, with the intent that you take this with you uh, and go over it on your own devotionally uh, and spend some time alone with the scriptures and with the Lord and, and think about these things, because some of the questions, especially toward the end, are much more personal uh, that we won't answer together. Uh, but uh, so let's think about uh, what is happening here uh, behind the scenes uh, with our Lord and what is going on um, we read some passages earlier uh, from Matthew 16 and Luke 22, uh, Luke 22, about how Satan entered Judas, who obviously was not a true believer in Jesus. Uh, by the way, we don't have time to go that route, but uh, someone who is truly born again cannot be indwelled by Satan or by a demon. Uh, the believer can be harassed. The believer can be influenced. The believer can be deceived. Uh, But cannot be indwelled as Judas was. Uh, And then in the Matthew 16 passage, uh, we see uh, Peter trying to rebuke the Lord when the Lord is talking about his upcoming suffering. The disciples just did not really understand uh, what Jesus was talking about. Uh, He began in his last days to turn his attention to them. Uh, even really a year before, uh, but it got more intense as the day approached for him to die. Uh, he wanted them to understand what was happening, but they just uh, didn't quite understand. And it is interesting uh, in Matthew. We see what we see, Peter. Uh, In that passage, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some people say John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah, the prophets. And Jesus said, well, who do you disciples say that I am? Peter was the spokesman. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it is interesting because Jesus basically said there in Matthew 16 to Peter, you would not have known that if God uh, had not revealed that to you. And by the way, the disciples there with him wouldn't have known uh, that Peter even knew that if Jesus hadn't pointed that out. So Peter is speaking uh, on behalf of God here. But then just, a, I mean, just a few moments later, what do we see? Peter speaking on behalf of Satan. Because Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be uh, torture. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter said, no, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus said, well, now you're being influenced by Satan trying to stop me from doing. So here we have the same person, the same true believer. On this hand, he's speaking being influenced by God. And on this hand, he's speaking being influenced by Satan. It's really interesting. And what we see behind the scenes is Satan using different tactics to hinder or attack the Lord using even a believer. And then he uses an unbeliever. But it brings up an interesting question. Why would Satan attempt to hinder Jesus from going to the cross using Peter in Matthew 16? But then later in Luke 22, he's going to use G- use Judas to try to get Jesus to go to the cross. Have you ever thought about that? The temptation of Christ in Matthew four and other places. And then he uses Peter. He's going to, he's trying to use these things to influence the Lord to keep him from going to the cross. But then he changes his tactics. Luke 22 tells us that he's going to use this, this uh, religious leaders. He's going to use Jesus or Judas to try to force Christ to go to the cross. What's going on? Why the change in strategy? Why the about face? It seems contradictory. And so we want to look at that this morning to see uh, what this is all about. It is uh, kind of a mystery, uh, but we'll see. It's almost like a crime scene. We have to look for the clues uh, in the scripture that tell us uh, what is happening here. So Matthew 16, we see the biblical account of Peter's declaration. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's taken Peter three years, right, to get to this conclusion. But then Jesus and his answer totally surprises everybody. Because as soon as Peter announces uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus tells him flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven Uh, And then after the declaration uh, that he made, Jesus puts this unexpected restriction, doesn't he? If you look at that Matthew 16 passage, this unexpected restriction on his disciples, he says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. He's saying, uh, you know, this is an unexpected limitation. He's wanting to prevent them from telling other people about what Peter had just said. And why would he do this? Uh, I think that they were probably really caught off guard. His disciples may have even been staggered. Uh, When you get to verse 21 of Matthew 16, they're already kind of confused, wondering why he's saying not to tell anyone. But in verse 21 of Matthew 16, he starts talking openly uh, about his death and what was waiting for him. I'm sure the disciples probably were just sick in the pit of their stomachs uh, about what he was saying. Maybe they were thinking that he was just using this as a way to teach them because he had done that before Uh, he had taught them uh, back in Luke nine and John six when he was feeding uh, large crowds. And John six six tells us that Jesus had a purpose in mind, that he was using these uh, impossible, difficult circumstances to teach the disciples because he said to Philip uh, that. Uh, go ahead, he says in John 6, 6, he asked Philip to do this, uh, not because he didn't know what he wanted to do, but because he wanted to teach Philip something. So maybe they were thinking this is what Jesus is doing again. All this talk about death and suffering and and what's coming. Maybe he's just trying to teach us something. Maybe he doesn't really mean it because this just sounds too impossible to be true. Maybe. He was just teaching them a lesson. But Peter, he's not going to have any of it, is he? He doesn't want any part of this. So he pulls Jesus aside there in Matthew 16. Uh, and it's interesting because earlier Jesus had told them what? Uh, whatever's bound in heaven, I'll allow you to bound on earth. Whatever's already loosed in heaven, I'll allow you to loose on earth. Talk about authority. As apostles, you're going to have authority. And Peter says, well, the first thing I'm going to do with this new authority is I'm going to tell you, no, Lord, you're not going to do this and really it's quite strong language as it's written there uh, literally peter is saying by no means whatsoever shall this happen to you so he's rebuking jesus something very very interesting here we see this in matthew 16:23 but also in mark 8:33 but look at that matthew 16:23 i'm going to turn over there too because i'm not there yet uh, Matthew sixteen twenty three, What do we notice? We notice something very interesting. When Peter said this to the Lord, Jesus had his back turned to Peter. How do we know that? Look at verse 23. What does it say? When Jesus answered Peter, what does it say? That he turned back toward Peter. You know, we don't sometimes we look over these little details in scripture, don't we? So when Peter said, no, Lord, may this never be, Jesus wasn't facing his disciples. I don't know what he was doing. Uh, we don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't facing them. He wasn't looking at them. He wasn't conversing with them. So he turns around. Maybe Jesus felt like such these things were so difficult that he couldn't talk to them face to face, that it was just too hard for them to bear. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but there was something happening. Because Jesus is facing away from them. And when Peter prohibits him from doing his God-ordained will and duty and destiny, Jesus turns. There's something in the way that Peter addressed Jesus that jolted Jesus to respond. We think it's because Jesus knew. Jesus immediately discerned the source behind Peter's rebuke. He knew the source behind Peter's rebuke. In the previous verses, Peter's declaration about the Lord was not from flesh and blood, not by the means of human or earthly reasoning. There was something spiritual going on that caused Peter to realize that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. It was another source that had inspired Peter. It was God, the father. The other disciples who were present, they wouldn't have necessarily made that same conclusion. It's a divine proclamation, just like God's previous revelation on Mount Sinai, 1500 years before. And it didn't resemble uh, the father's glorious confirming of his son at Jesus birth or Jesus baptism. There was none of that happening when Peter made that declaration about Jesus at other times when God's glory appeared or there was a voice from heaven or an angel messenger. It was something unseen, something spiritual. There was no dove descending like at Jesus baptism. They wouldn't have perceived that God was the source of Peter's declaration unless Jesus had revealed it to them. However, the same thing is true when Peter speaks again. Poor Peter. Poor Peter. He never really knew when to stop talking. <laughs> if we had just stopped right there, we're like, Peter, you're the man. Christ is, the, is the, the living God, the Son of the living God. But no, he doesn't stop there, does he? Uh, he keeps talking. Some of us have that same problem. I'm not going to name names, but uh, if I had a mirror in my pocket, I'd probably pull it out. So the same is true here. And then those that were still present there, including Peter, would never have known that Satan was the ultimate source of Peter's declaration unless Jesus had pointed it out. Right. It would have just been Peter. Good job. Try to stop the Lord from dying. You know, Peter, you're doing a good thing. They would not have discerned that he was being satanically influenced to distract the Son of God from his Father's will if Jesus had not told them. Why? Because Satan's deception is subtle and it was undetected by everyone present except for Jesus. Right? Right? They wouldn't have concluded that Peter spoke from God and they certainly wouldn't have considered or even thought it possible that Peter would ever speak for Satan. Because Peter was for Jesus. He wasn't against Jesus. And they all knew. And Satan knew it, too. And he used Peter's open love and allegiance to Jesus to his own advantage, making Peter an unwitting mouthpiece for his own satanic scheme. Interesting. Interesting. Now, let's think about this. How did Jesus know that it was Satan behind Peter? Well, I do think we can say. The father had allowed Jesus to have a certain level of omniscience while in his humanity, because the gospel of John, chapter two tells us he did not need men to tell him about themselves because he knew what was in a man. So there is a little bit of divine omniscience working here. But remember, that omniscience was limited and dependent upon the father. Philippians tells us that Jesus set aside the free use of his divine attributes while he was in the flesh. He was still God, but he could only display those divine attributes at the will and the permission of the father. So there's something else here. There's another reason that Jesus knew and we think it's because he had encountered this same form of satanic influence years earlier. We talk about the temptation of Christ, right? In Matthew chapter four, uh, in Mark chapter one and Luke chapter four. And it's interesting that we're told that, that Satan continuously tempted Jesus for 40 days. And, and I don't know if you noticed that before, but it says uh, when it says he was tempted, the way the verb is set up there in Matthew four, Mark one and Luke four, it's actually saying uh, that Jesus was continuously tempted for 40 days by saying, I think sometimes we get the impression, you know, Matthew gives us three temptations and we think, oh, Jesus must have been out there for 39 days. And then, boom, on the 40th day, it was extreme because he had fasted. and he... No, he was continuously tempted. And then at the very end, when he was his weakest and most vulnerable, that's when Satan really turned it up and made it even more tempting. Satan's final temptation of Jesus during this segment consisted of shortcuts to his messianic work. Shortcuts to receive his glory. Skip the trials, skip the temptations is what Satan was always coming Or offering Christ. And if Jesus had given in even at one small point. Everything would have been lost. He would have been disqualified. As the spotless Lamb of God. And it is interesting how Satan appealed to what? To Jesus' sense of ease and comfort. Right? He appealed to his hunger. Uh, He also appealed to other things. But we know that Jesus did not come to live a life of ease. Do you ever notice that in the scriptures? Because really, what is the American dream all about? We're always striving for a life of comfort, a life of ease, a life of leisure. That's the exact opposite of what Jesus sought when he was in the flesh. In that Satan uses temptations of comfort and ease to distract or hinder Jesus from accomplishing his father's will. I don't know about you. You can look at me. Just take one look. I know it's you enjoy it. Yeah. All right. And you know that that's a temptation for me. And I'm not going to name names, but I know it's a temptation for some of you. Comfort and ease. Who's not tempted by comfort and ease? And my question is, how often has my love of comfort, my love of ease. Distracted me from doing God's will that I know needs to be done. Satan's no dummy. Satan's not some red devil with horns that walks around with a pitchfork. The scriptures tell us that he is a roaring lion. Seeking someone to what? Devour. He is violent. He is bloodthirsty. He's a murderer. He's a liar. He's an accuser. He's an attacker. Jesus knew what was behind Peter's words. However, Jesus did not come with the purpose of attaining a life of ease. Jesus came as a servant. He came as a ransom, he came as a redeemer, and it would cost him all that he had to achieve what the father wanted him to achieve. In fact, it would require of him more than anyone else ever born had ever paid for anything. So when Peter rebuked Jesus and attempted to dissuade him, it was a temptation disguised to cause Jesus to abandon the eternal plan of the father. Which was that the. Only sinless person who has ever lived or will ever live would be the only holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Beware of temptations disguised. The temptation to Peter was disguised. He thought he was doing a good thing. But what did the Lord say? He said, Peter, you're not looking out for God's interest, you're looking out for your own or for man's. And any time I'm living for my own self-interest, I am not living for God's. That's tough stuff. I see it on your face. You're like rats. That's not good news. That's not an Easter message. It's hard, isn't it? It's hard. You know, Paul told the Corinthians that because Jesus Christ reconciled us back to our heavenly father, we should live for him, not for ourselves. That's hard. Jesus said what? Anyone who wishes to follow after me must first of all deny himself himself and take up his cross daily and come after me. In this moment Peter was not doing that. Years later the Holy Spirit would inspire Peter to write something very different in first Peter chapter one, verses eighteen and nineteen. Peter wrote there regarding our salvation. He said, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. He knew then he understood then later. However, even the smallest step away from the will of the father would mean blatant disobedience and rebellion for God. The tiniest trace or blemish of imperfection would permanently disqualify Jesus as the spotless lamb of God. In fact, if Jesus sinned even once throughout his entire life, then he himself would have needed a savior. Mm. But no other savior would come for either him or for unredeemed humanity because no other redeemer existed. You know, Matthew sixteen twenty-two reports that Peter began his rebuke by saying, God forbid it, Lord. It's interesting how that literally reads. It literally literally reads God be merciful to you, Lord. God, be merciful to you, Lord. Being merciful was God's purpose. But his purpose for mercy was for you and me uh, to save those who have been contaminated and imprisoned by the effects of Adam's sin. His purpose was mercy. Maybe Jesus was facing away from Peter when he heard these words. Because. It would be easier for him to process and to discern and understand what was going on if he wasn't looking directly into the face of his friend. Does that make sense? I thought it made sense to me. He loved these men. He loved these disciples. He loved Peter. Maybe it was just too hard to look at him right in his face and tell him, Brother, You're being influenced by Satan right now because you're trying to keep me from accomplishing my father's will. With friends like that, who needs Judas? Jesus immediately discerned the ultimate source of the statement. And surprising as the revelation a few years earlier had been uh, that God was the ultimate source behind the other truths spoken by Peter. He now learns that Satan was the ultimate source of what he was saying. At the end of our Lord's temptation in Matthew 4, do you remember what Jesus commanded Satan? He said, Matthew 4:10, "Be gone. Be gone. Hapage in the Greek. That's going to be really important. Be gone, hapage." When Jesus turns to rebuke Peter, what do you think he says? Hapage. When he told Satan at the end of his temptation, be gone, hapage, he turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, hapage. the same command. He says you're a stumbling block. You're setting your mind not on God's interest, but man's. Satan had floundered here at this point. He couldn't keep Jesus from heading toward the cross. He was trying everything for years. To keep Jesus from getting to the, to the cross. But it wasn't working. The living word of God employed the written word of God at all times. To help him identify temptation and rebuke the tempter. Something only he can do. We do not rebuke Satan. What's interesting is the first son of God. It's what we call Adam. The first man ever created. Had fallen very quickly and with pretty, pretty much very little effort, right? On Satan's part. There was no great grandiose scheme by Satan to get Adam and Eve to sin. He hadn't hadn't offered them all the world's kingdoms like he did Jesus. It was just a simple temptation. Choose the creation over the creator. And it worked to perfection. They sinned pretty quickly. And I'm of the mindset that Adam and Eve sinned really quickly after they were created because they had no children in the garden. And I'm not being crass, I'm being sincere. And they also didn't have any birth control. And they were commanded, be fruitful and multiply. So they would have been having children pretty much right away. But they hadn't. So they sinned pretty quickly. But Jesus had not fallen. He's had this prolonged encounter with Satan for years and years. Neither did he ever stumble. Whether he was tempted by Satan or tempted by a beloved friend, he stood firm. He remained standing even after the temptation ended. So now we know in Matthew 16. That Jesus begins a slow, steady process of moving toward Jerusalem Moving toward the cross, moving toward the thing, the very reason, the destiny that was willed for him by his heavenly father. We won't go there, but you might want to jot down first Peter one, 17 to 21. It tells us that it was the father's plan for the Lord to die for our sins even before the world began. That was the whole reason he came. And yet Peter says, No. This isn't going to happen. He doesn't understand. But let's think about something. What exactly was Satan after? What exactly did he desire? Why did he constantly try to ensnare Jesus, trap Jesus, hinder Jesus, keep Jesus from the cross, then trying to force Jesus to the cross? What would Satan lose if Jesus made it to the cross? That's a good question. The scriptures are clear that Satan used every available force in his arsenal, first to keep the Lord from the cross, and then to force the Lord to the cross. We have to go all the way back uh, to Genesis chapter 3. I'll leave it there for a second. We have to go all the way back to Genesis 3. Because when the man and the woman sinned, there was something in the curse. There was a promise in the curse that relates to Satan, isn't there? It says that the serpent or Satan will bruise you on the heel, talking about the Messiah that would come. He would cause suffering for the Messiah. But then it says, but he, the Messiah, will crush you on the head. Well, What does that mean in Genesis uh, chapter three? Let's see where I'm at. Sorry, just give me a minute. Okay, let's go there and then we'll go back. What did that mean when God promised? That there that the Messiah would crush Satan. What he's saying is that someday there would be a descendant from the first woman. There would be a human being who would be the ultimate downfall, ruin and destruction of Satan. Who would it be? Now, the Old Testament is interesting because we know that many, many women hoped that their child would be the promised Messiah. But what do we have? We have a long history of one potential deliverer after another who failed to meet the muster. It had to be someone Who was acceptable in holiness to God. Someone like the perfect lamb in the Jewish sacrificial system. No spot, no wrinkle, no blemish, no defect. Who would that be? Is it Jeremiah? Is it Moses? Is it Abraham? Is it Jacob? Is it Elijah? No, 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 double no, triple no. Or like when you're little, no to affinity, I win. You ever do that arguing with your siblings and you're just sick of it? Infinity, I win. It's a long parade of potential deliverers. But just like we saw last week in the book of the Revelation, when John had saw the scroll and and they said in heaven, there's no one worthy to open this scroll who is worthy. The history of man is a history of failed deliverers. None of these were the redeemer. Jesus alone was the one. You see, Satan knew holiness when he was in its presence. He had never encountered a man like this since he had been in the Garden of Eden. Because remember... Before Adam sinned, he was very much like Jesus. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them with a human nature, but not with a sin nature. Hmm. G- or Satan sees something very different. He's thinking, I haven't seen someone like this in several thousand years. Adam had failed and fallen quickly. So maybe Satan's thinking, I can get this so-called Jesus Savior to fail. Because he knew what the cross was all about. You see, why didn't Satan just try to kill Jesus? Because God's standard of holiness was so strict and so impossible Through thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Why do I have to kill him? All I have to do is trip him up. Just one tiny, tiny little thing. What did Paul tell the Galatians? He who has broken even the smallest letter of the law is a lawbreaker. Folks, we love to classify our sins. In my mind, I've got big sins. I don't do any of the big sins, so I'm good. I just do the little sins, right? I I only I only peddle in class B sins, class A sins. That's for the real big sinners. But we do that, don't we? I'm not as bad as I could name names and I'm not going to. I'm not going to say I'm not as bad as Stephen or I'm not as bad as Eddie or Richard. I'm better than those guys, so I'm pretty I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. He who sins, even the smallest, tiniest, little, minute, detailed, little sin. I got a a newsflash for you. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're ruined. If you've only told one, if the only sin you've ever committed in your entire life is one tiny, dinky little white lie. Jasmine, did you take that cookie out of the cookie jar? No, I didn't take that cookie. She's got crumbs all over her face. That happened to me once. We were in Western Pennsylvania, my first church. Anybody here from Western Pennsylvania? Okay. Go- oh, oops, George. Okay, change the story. Let's see. I forgot George Miller. Love it out there, George. Beautiful. Love, it. just love. It. Whoa. I was like a fish out of water, George, the hunting, the trapping, the killing, the fishing. That wasn't my uh, world. Anyway, there were some folks from a group home, disabled, uh, developmentally disabled people they would bring to church every Sunday. Loved those people. Uh, but there was one, there was one guy he was kind of getting in trouble. And we had all the cookies downstairs for Awana. And he came upstairs and his face just covered with Oreo. He's got in his teeth on his face. I said, Joe. Did you eat those cookies? No. And he always called me Pastor Joe. His name was Joe. I said, Joe, I'm Pastor Jeff. Okay, Pastor Joe. He got cookies all over his face. Did you eat those cookies? No, why didn't eat those cookies. That's not adultery. That's not murder. That's not any big, huge, A-list sin. That's just an inky-dinky, teeny-weeny, tiny, probably C-list sin. So he ate a couple cookies, and then he told me he didn't. But what does that make him? Sinner. Ruined. Destined for separation for eternity from God. If Satan could just trip up Jesus, because God's standard for holiness is so strict... So matchless, so perfect, so intense, so deep, that if he could just get Jesus to trip up one tiny, little, inky, dinky, do the hokey pokey, turn yourself around, sin, that it's all over. It's all over. There will be no salvation for anyone. So well, that's what Satan's plan is. He's going to try to trip up Jesus. He's going to focus on trying to prevent Jesus from ever getting to the cross. Satan knew that this man, this one, was different. This one was unique, he was thinking. This one just keeps standing. So far, Jesus had withstood all of the previous sons of Adam. He had not even come close to falling when all before him had never even come close to resisting. Satan's probably thinking, "Okay, this one has withstood all the trinkets and the temptations I've thrown at him. But he has not even begun to withstand all that I have to offer. Satan still had much more to employ against Jesus. And after Matthew 16, his battle plan requires a change of strategy. He's going to make a wager. He's going to bet everything on his new approach. What is that approach going to be? You'll have to come back next week to find out. I'm going to have Carol come up. This is a surprise to you, Carol. Uh, hymn number 310. Hymn number 310, Lead Me to Calvary. I've asked Maggie and Lisa to help me. Basically, they're going to sing it. I'm not going to sing. We're just going to sing verses 1 and 4. Verses 1 and 4. I'd like to close with him. Let's stand together. My goal for the message today was to try to motivate us to appreciate and wonder at the mystery of Jesus' humanity. Bring your outlines next week. We'll use the same outline. Jesus was a man just like you, just like me. And yet, because he was the sinless, spotless, perfect lamb of God, he felt the weight of... Of temptation far greater than any person ever has. And when we're talking about what makes the cup that Jesus drank so much different than the cup of suffering that we may have to drink. And this is one of the mysteries. Is that his cup is so much bigger, so much more full of temptation and burden and care than you and I and all of humankind combined could ever imagine. Adam and Eve felt like that. You and I, we fall like that. Set your watch. Okay, I'm not going to sin for the next. Oh, I already did. Not Jesus. The author of the book of Hebrews says, We have a high priest who understands our weaknesses because he is just like us, yet without sin. He carried the burden of temptation at a deeper, fuller level than we can even imagine. And yet he stood firm. He didn't move. He didn't fail. He didn't budge. We'll see more about that, Lord willing, next week. Let's sing verses 1 and 4. Lead me to Calvary. Leading up to the Easter season, let's really meditate upon Christ and all that he has done for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we marvel, we marvel, we wonder. There's much more we don't understand than we do. But some things we do understand from this morning are that Satan, for the entire life and ministry of Christ, tried to destroy him. Even when he was born, there were babies murdered in an attempt for Satan to destroy our Lord. He was constantly attacked, not just in the physical realm, but as we'll see next week, attacked in the spiritual realm. It was nonstop, And yet he never faltered. He never stumbled. He never hesitated. He never wavered. He knew his destiny. He knew his father's purpose was to die for our sins. And even the fiercest arsenal of hell could not stop him. And we just thank you and we praise you for our Savior. May we appreciate and marvel at his humanity. And at the level of the burden and the temptation and the struggle that he endured to get himself to the cross for us. And Father, secondly, may we understand this morning. That if we are not living for your interest, we're just merely living for our own. And Father, you know that in our sinful, fallen humanity. We exalt our own self-interest, our self-pursuits, our self-pleasures, our self-comfort, our self-promotion. And, Father, many times it keeps us from doing your will, from obeying your will, from receiving the blessings that come. Our Lord said, seek first the kingdom of God. But oftentimes we're seeking the kingdom of me. So, Father, show us as the psalmist prayed, as David prayed. He wanted to see the error of his way. He wanted you to reveal his own heart to him. That's our prayer. Father, show us where we might be living for our own interests and not for yours. And bring us to the place of conviction that changes us, not just an emotional feeling. But may your spirit move within our hearts to the point that we want to change. And we want to live more for your interests. And empty ourselves of our own self-interest. So, Father, for the next few weeks, we continue to meditate and reflect upon our Lord's suffering, his passion, his death, his resurrection. We want him to be exalted. We pray that you have been glorified and we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Hope you have a wonderful week.